Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval and I've worked with the festival director Chantal Edwards as guest curator of this year's podcast series. Each Thursday, across the next few months, we'll be releasing new episodes of the podcast, including wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. In today's podcast, we welcome debut author Elm Nicol in conversation with Dr. Melanie Ramdashan-Bold about her first novel, A Kind of Spark. Elle's novel follows 11-year-old Addie as she campaigns to fund a memorial to commemorate the witch trials that took place in her Scottish hometown, drawing nuanced parallels between the ignorance surrounding Addie's autism and that which fueled historic witch trials. Join Elle and Melanie as they discuss the importance of representing neurodiversity in children's fiction, inclusive publishing, and recognising buried histories. This brilliant episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is brought to you in partnership with Bourneville Bookfest, Birmingham's book festival for children. Hello and welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival. I'm Melanie Ramdershambold. I'm an Associate Professor of Publishing and Book Studies, Dream Job, at University College London and I am utterly delighted to be speaking to the lovely debut author Elle McNichol today. Elle is the author of the delightful, warm and funny middle grade novel A Kind of Spark, uh, which is about Addie, an 11 year old autistic girl campaigning for a memorial for the witches, uh, witches trials that took place in her Scottish village. I had the absolute pleasure of teaching Elle during her publishing MA at UCL, and it has been a joy to see her career blossom over the last year. Elle, hello. Hi. I'm so excited to speak to you today. I thought it was surreal having you introduce me. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? But lovely. Yeah, really nice. Um, so I'm so delighted to see how, you know, the reaction to your book and you as an author um, over the last few months. Why don't we start by speaking a wee bit about your route into authorship? Yep. So like Mel just said, I was doing a publishing MA and I was doing that MA with every intention of going into publishing as, you know, an editorial assistant or, you know, some someone working on, on the production of books, not as an author at all. I, I don't recommend publishing MAs if you want to be an author, although, although UCL was phenomenal and <laughs> a- allowed me to do all the research that I needed for this book, which was the reason I went. But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't planning on it. And I set up a meeting with Knights of, who are the publishers of A Kind of Spark, and I think we'll probably talk about them a bit more later on. But I set up a meeting with them purely to kind of offer my services as a graduate, saying if you ever want a neurodivergent book on your list, I, you know, I've got a lot of research on it. I've got my own experience as a neurodivergent person. I can do any sensitivity reads, proofreading, editing, whatever you need. That was the intention of the meeting. And somehow it got it got turned around to have you written a book to which I stupidly said yes, even though the book was, you know, had had about 2000 words left to write of it. Um, I've not told anyone this, actually. I went home and wrote those 2000 words that day. And, and it's purely by accident kind of ended up in the publisher's hands that way um i was looking for a job i wasn't looking for a book deal well you got you got a job as an author at the end yeah. that's so fortuitous <laughs> and i love that idea of nights of um you know sort of seeing 
seeing the potential and developing that potential. I hope so. I hope that's what it was. I think David, who is um, the co-founder of Nights of and who the person I took the meeting with, I think he's very just sort of, have you got a book? Anyone got a book? Like he's just that, that way. Like he, he, um, he's very, um, inclusive and he, and, and encouraging to, to people. Like, you know, I think it's very that much the belief that everyone kind of has a book in them. And, you know, I'm just very lucky that, that he asked and, I don't know why I said yes, but if I hadn't, we wouldn't be here. So Delighted that you did say yes. <laughs> um, so you talked a wee bit, obviously, I know you've been the publishing MA and um, you, you have developed sort of skill sets and experience and knowledge of the publishing industry, not only over the course of your MA, but before and afterwards as well. So how would you say that your publishing experience and, and that experience and knowledge has played into to your writing? Well. I, I don't know how it played into the writing, but I think it definitely played into your kind of business mindset as an author, because nowadays authors have to kind of have that marketing sort of mindset as well. You know, it's not it's of only a small few who are privileged enough to kind of lock themselves away and be creative and not have to do any kind of PR or marketing or, or self-promotion. So I think the MA really helped me kind of hone an idea of where the industry is at the moment my research in the MA 100% gave me the the confidence to say where the gaps in the industry are and that's a whole other conversation but it, you know it gave me that that kind of data and analysis to be you know and I'm not an academic writer like please people listening do not think I'm in any way academically talented I'm not but I had the data very modest to... <laughs> I, I marked some of her assignments she's been very modest no no that is that is a fib but I but I but I had the data and I had the kind of information to be able to say well, well this is a gap in in the market and I don't think it's a gap in the market for a good reason I think it's it's a neglected um audience so it gave me a lot of confidence in that respect to go into a lot of rooms and say I don't think you're publishing enough books about disabled kids I don't think you're employing enough disabled people just purely from the work that I'd done in the MA so it was a huge um benefit to me as a as a not as a business I don't call myself a businessman but from a kind of non-creative point of view from a business point of view it was you know it was invaluable so can you tell us a wee bit more about the research that you undertook I took over 200 books that had been published in the last sort of publishing cycle in middle grade and I collated them to see how their disability representation was and the results were not good. It was very inspired by the Reflecting Realities report which obviously Mel knows a lot about and I recommend reading. We love CLP. <laughs> Everyone should read their reports. But I also learned doing that that middle grade was in really good shape story like creatively like there was a lot of exciting stuff being done it just was excluding this this huge proportion of, of, of readers. So yeah, I did a lot of reading, which wasn't hard. It was a great part of the of the process. And while I was doing that research, I started writing Spark. Um, so I was writing them in tandem. My dissertation and Spark were both being written side by side. And um, I think that they really inform each other a lot. I didn't know. I didn't know you were writing them in tandem. That's so yeah. lovely. Um, so you've touched upon the fact that you write from middle grade, which is, um, although we're obviously against age age banding, mm. um, it's aimed broadly at 8 to 12 years old. And this age is obviously a critical period in academic development um, and one where there's often a decline in children reading for pleasure. Why do you write for young people, particularly this middle grade audience? So 
I agree with the age bracket thing. I, I like to say that it's it's a middle grade book, but it's for eight and up. So it's there's no kind of upper um age limit. I've well, so it was one of my favorite books this year. And, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not in that <laughs> age bracket. I know I've been so lucky with how many adults have written to me about how much they like it. But yeah, I write for that age group because that was the age that I really came into my own as a reader. I before that I was what I liked to read was dictated a lot to me. I, it was very much um, prescribed to me. And that was the age where I started to choose my own reading. And there was a lot of Jacqueline Wilson. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was an addict of Jacqueline Wilson. I just I mean, blew through her books. She is a queen. She is. She's she's unparalleled. And um, so, yeah, I think that's why I write for middle grades. I'm also a big YA fan, but I, I just love where middle grade is at the moment. And and I just have such a visceral memory of, of being 10 years old and being a reader and having all these problems at school, but having solace in reading. And so I think I write for those kids that were a bit like me. Yeah. I mean, this is a difficult question to ask, and it's probably one you might not be able to answer. But what would a book like Spark meant, have meant for you as, you know, a middle grade reader? It, it would have been life changing. I mean, that was partly why I wrote it and had confidence writing it, because it just would have made everything easier to have. Because I used books almost as tools. You know, I would use them to kind of make sense of a world that did not make a lot of sense to me as a neurodivergent child. You know, social rules and situational kind of everyday hazards. The books were very much tools of how to navigate those those things. And so to have a book like Spark, it would have been life changing. And, you know, and I'm very, very adamant that Spark is a story first and foremost, and it's written to entertain and it's written to engage and it's written to to reflect a, a neglected reader. But it is also in some ways a little bit of a toolbox. And I got the most gorgeous message last night from someone saying they're eight-year-old niece has read it and is now fully accepting and and ready to to proceed with diagnosis because they finally they've been resisting it but because they loved Addie so much they are now not afraid and they don't see anything wrong with it and that is I mean I'm getting emotional saying it now that is huge and that's that's mind-blowing Elle that's that's incredible that's kind of the dream and it's yeah so it would have been huge for me and that you know that's the power of inclusive and representative literature really isn't it absolutely yeah and uh, I suppose obviously I'm a huge fan of the lovely nights of and (laughs) I think they're doing incredible work um and I was so delighted when you you know you're publishing with them you've told us a wee bit about um how David sort of encouraged you to to publish with them what has your experience been like just the whole publishing experience but also publishing with Nights Of in particular? Oh it's been incredible like I always like to say to people that my experience as a published author probably isn't very universal because it's with a very special publisher but it was just incredible not to even in the pitch process of the book which was like I said earlier very off the cuff and not prepared I didn't have to explain to them why it's important that autistic children see themselves in books why it's important that own voices books are are in the middle grades age but I didn't have to explain any of that and that was kind of radical because I've been in a lot of rooms where people were you know a bit sort of like well I don't know if those people read so I don't think we should you know and I didn't have to do any of that with Nights of I didn't have to explain why you know why the book needed to be written and and they were just always 
making sure that everything was accessible and they brought in a team that were also neurodivergent which is kind of mind-blowing you know my incredible illustrator and cover designer is neurodivergent the uh second editor that came in to do kind of final checks anna is neurodivergent you know it was unbelievable and i don't think another publisher working at the moment could have done that and i really if if spark has any success right now it is purely down to the the ko team and the wider team that they work with because they have just fought for this book so much yeah i mean they've done an amazing job on social media and obviously the response has been incredible as well um okay so i've i i gave a very brief outline of your book earlier it's so lovely to learn about how you wrote it in tandem with your dissertation. <laughs> but how how did the idea for um, Spark come about? So the the main premise of the book is this girl who's campaigning for a memorial for the witches in her village, and that's been an idea I've been playing with for since I think my last year of university. So when we had to do a kind of major project, I was like, I want to write a book about someone campaigning for a memorial, and there was a very early draft way back then it wasn't a middle grade and the character was a lot older and not absolutely nothing to do with Addie and it just wasn't working because the character was very cynical and very standoffish and just had a massive chip on their shoulder which is you know nothing wrong with that that's me that's you know it's basically just me but but <laughs> it just didn't seem to work with the story I was like why would this cynical defeatist negative person be campaigning for this this thing and um it just wasn't working so I just put it down and didn't touch it again and then back you know last it was probably a year ago now yeah just a, over a year ago now when I was writing the diss I just started from scratch again and put Addie who came fully formed which is quite unusual put her into the driving seat and suddenly everything clicked into place and it all made a ton of sense and you know I think that's the advice I would give anyone if you're struggling with a draft or something's just not clicking, it could be the, the protagonist. I think the protagonist is the absolute core of the book. And and the minute Addie showed up kind of ready to work, then everything was, was easy. And how, how did she come to you? It just appeared. I mean, I think if I'm, and I can say this to you, Mel, because you kind of understand. I think when I was sitting on all that research and I just was reading all these books and and reading the same kind of protagonist over and over again and you know trying to find an academic way of saying well you know this isn't great for for this demographic of kids i just kind of created the character that i wanted to see in all of these books that i wasn't seeing so she kind of came as this not an anti-hero but just appeared as as what i really wanted to be reading what i love most was the relationship between um adi and kitty yeah, and actually, just the dynamics between the the three sisters in general. Oh, it's such fun to write the three of them. I love writing Kitty and Addie together. Their relationship is the heart of the book. But Nina is once Nina's in the mix, it's actually a lot more fun because she's so she's such a, a an obstacle to the two of them. Um, so were these based on any kind of relationships you've had in your lives, whether with friends or family? Probably. I haven't psychoanalyzed it deeply enough. But um, I think Kitty is kind of the person I wish was in my life when I was Addie's age because she has a lot of the answers to things that I didn't have the answer to at 11 years old. She has a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom that she kind of imparts to Addie because um, for, for anyone that doesn't know, Kitty is also autistic. They're both autistic uh, sisters. Nina is the only one that isn't, which is unusual. So they have this bond and, and this communication that I think I really wanted as 
as an 11 year old so I think she's kind of aspirational in, in some ways and um, she's grounded in reality as well where she has her own her own arc going on in the story I'm trying to think I don't I can't say who Nina is based on without getting myself excommunicated from the family but um I think she's a little bit of some people in my family and can we see any of your aspects of your personality in any of the characters I mean, Addie has been so well received by readers that I have to believe there's none of me in her because everyone just keeps saying how great she is. So I think I'm a little bit in... I mean, Mel taught me at university. I'm a bit like Kidi because she's she's not the most academic, even though I think she has things to say and she's very, um, you know, she's got ideas, but just the university environment is a little bit sort of difficult for her so I think there's maybe a bit of me and her um but I like to tell people I get asked a lot people say which sister are you and I like to say I'm the woman that lives in the woods like I just (laughs) (laughs) want to be left in the woods on my own why do you think young readers will be attracted to Addie's story well it kind of touches on what we said earlier but I truly believe that there are a lot of kids like Addie out there and I think a lot of them find their their peace and their entertainment in books because books are not as overwhelming um, in a sensory fashion as some other things because I was that kid I don't think I was unique or special I think there's probably a lot of kids the same way I was out there and I think the book really is kind of like a hand on the shoulder saying like I see you I've been there I know exactly how it feels but it's also an engaging story and it's about you know, Addie doesn't have a superpower. She's not the chosen one. She doesn't have a magical wand. Everything that she achieves in the book without giving away the ending, she does by just being persistent and just getting up each time, every time she's kind of pushed back down, she just keeps on going. And 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 I think that's that's a very relatable message. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And and I, I, I just wanted to tell a story about, you know, there is no magical cure. There is no magical intervention sometimes you have to really really work and people are going to doubt you and they're but you just have to keep on pushing and I think especially in today's world a lot of people can relate to that absolutely and so obviously witches and witchcraft play a central role in the book yeah and the link between the treatment of of the witches and Addie's fears about being ostracized um because she's autistic was really well done can you tell us a wee bit more about the origins of that idea? That was actually, as long with Addie kind of appearing, that was when the story clicked into place. Because like I said, it was always about a witch memorial, but it wasn't until um, there was an intern for the, for the I think the archives in Scotland that uploaded all of this information about the witch trials and about people who were accused of witchcraft. And she did it by location. So you could click on locations and it would tell you the specifics of the trials and the cases. And I was reading all these cases in my area and I was reading each one and it kept saying things in the, the, the document, in the court documents, in the notes, things like would talk to herself, would ask for money on the street, uh, was not sociable, was not communicative, and it just kept using this language. And and these are primary sources. These were notes made at the time. And it just kept using this language. And I was like, I think a lot of these people had disabilities. I think they were had neurodevelopmental disabilities. And because the way they're being described and the behavior that's being described is is very similar to the behaviors that people sort of are uncomfortable with and shun today. And I'd been kind of sold a story about witches that they were all sort of 
beautiful empowered women that the neighborhood just couldn't handle and that's why they burned them at the stake and while i'm sure that was you know there was an element of that i i there's something very vulnerable about all of the cases i was reading and i just thought you know that's probably what what it was it was you know the same people that that we a lot of society pretends they can't see today i think that's who they were and that's when it kind of clicked into place i was like i i recognized you know, a lot of my younger self or my more vulnerable self in some of the court descriptions. And I just thought, oh, goodness, you know, would I have been hounded in, in those days just for, you know, not conforming to, to or not being able to mask well enough. So it, that's where it came from. It came from the archives. Uh, yeah, I'm so terribly embarrassed about Scotland's role in, oh, the, yeah. <laughs> in the, the, witch, the witch trials. Weren't more witches killed in Scotland than anywhere else. Than anywhere yeah. else. I think Germany maybe was matching us, but yeah, it's, it's between Scotland and Germany. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think Salem, Massachusetts, but really we, we had a much higher, um, yeah. I suppose witch hunting is probably an extension of the Protestant Refor- uh, Reformation. Oh, and there was, yeah, and a lot of the, the um, courtroom docs also said, you know, practicing a different religion or like it, there was, yeah. Yeah, and King James was obviously terribly religious, and yes. uh, I, I'm, I'm just recalling standard great history here. He wasn't he super religious <laughs> and terrified of witches? So. Yes, he was. He was always. I think I, I, there was a trial in North Berwick because he was convinced that a storm had been, in, you know, cast by witches to try and kill him. Yeah, he was very paranoid about witches, yeah, which is why they're in Macbeth. Fun fact. Yeah, but. Um, and I suppose this takes me to my next question. So you you mentioned you know this idea of witches being you know glamorous and you know and they have mm. been glamorized over the year the years. I certainly remember watching The Craft in the nineteen nineties wanting <laughs> to be a witch. Um, and of course, she who cannot be named has catapulted yes. witches and wizards <laughs> into the spotlight as well. Um, so my question is, who do you think is more misunderstood, sharks oh. or witches? I think sharks. I think, oh, see, you've got to be careful getting me started about sharks. There's there's a lot of sharks mentioned in the book. This won't make a lot of sense if you haven't read the book, but if you have, then you'll know. You know, I don't want to bring down the podcast on the Birmingham Literature Festival, but we kill millions of sharks every year. And and it's they're such incredible animals, and they're so important to the ecosystem. And I don't know how many more sort of tacky remakes of Jaws we need to see before. <laughs> like, it's the same story over and over again about these animals that really do not want to kill us. So, yeah, I think sharks are still deeply misunderstood. And, yeah, and... I was thinking about this, that sharks are completely maligned. So I was thinking about popular culture and I was thinking, <laughs> you know, all these really glamorous portrayals and cool portrayals of witches and wizards in popular culture. And I was thinking... Where are sharks? You know what? Yes. What are positive? And the only shark that I could think of was Bruce in Finding Nemo. And even he, sorry to be a nerd, but even he, when he smells a bit of blood, turns into this kind of That's right. dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I remember that. I, oh, Mel, you don't know what you've done. I was watching that when when it came out of the cinema as a kid, and I remember thinking, "Yes, someone's finally, you know, they're not giving into that old tired trope." But nope. 10 minutes in and he's smelled blood and he's off so yeah so what we need is like a, a series of um a series of books and tv reclaiming center the reputation yeah, exactly. of sharks i'm on it <laughs> <laughs> well i'm very excited about that <laughs> i'd love to read more about addy particularly 
seeing what her and her pals get up to next. Is there any chance of a sequel? I'd love to write. Ultimately, I'd love to, it to be a trilogy, like the Juniper trilogy. I would love to write a sequel with Addy and Audrey, where maybe Addy goes and does like Scottish Youth Parliament or something, something a little bit more big city so that they have to get out of the village. But I'd love to have a sequel that's just really joyful and wholesome and kind of just not so focused on, on the neurodivergent aspects that they that the book has because I don't want to write the same book over and over I'd just love to have a sequel where Addie goes on to kind of live her life a bit I'd love to write a prequel with Kiri because I just think that's there's a lot of stuff to tell there so yeah ultimately I'd love to write three in total it's completely up to the publishers but um I'd love a sequel with Addie who and she's a bit older like maybe 14 maybe like a bit of a teen book because there's just so much to talk about when you're a teenager who's neurodivergent you know it's just it's it's a different way of of telling that kind of early adolescent story and i'd like to write something kind of fun and joyful and after the year we've all had yeah i mean i i I find that spark was really fun and funny and cheerful yeah so do i but um but you know i just you know a sequel without the 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 villain that's in this this story hanging over Addy the whole time yeah so I I will start a petition because um, <laughs> I would love to read this three uh, the this series um, and I think you know from what I've seen the book has been beautifully received um, yeah. uh, what is your experience about the reception um, especially oh. at the kind of age range that's been aimed at well like I said I get messages like the person who let me know that their their niece is now excited about diagnosis which is just unbelievable and I get letters from parents saying oh my child doesn't like to read fiction this is the first fiction book they've read and they really like it and they're on their third read and you know that's incredible and I get teachers saying you know this has taught me more than any course I've been on and now I have kind of an understanding of how to you know adapt my classroom and it's been phenomenal um librarians teachers parents kids like everyone has been so fantastic and you know the book came out in June when bookshops were were closed and and yet booksellers just rallied around it and were so so supportive and 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 it did have its kind of its debut even even with all of the the restrictions and so there I can't really express how incredible the response has been it's been overwhelming so what has it been like being you know being a debut author during lockdown <laughs> particularly since an aspect of your jobs would have been school visits yeah it, that's hard it's been very hard like I don't like to talk about it too much because there's so many bigger things going on I don't want to be sort of like wow I can't go and meet readers but um it is hard not being able to see readers face to face social media you know thank goodness I know people talk about the evils of social media a lot but I've just it's been a lifesaver for connecting me with 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 readers and giving them a way to sort of you know give them my email address if they want to write and and it's just it's it's been a lifesaver but yeah it's been hard not being able to to see people face to face you know in general not just in terms of promoting the book but you know I haven't seen any of you know I've been lucky enough to see my editor but I haven't you know seen any of the team I've not met my illustrator face to face I've not met my publicist face to face it's been all done through technology and it's and you just kind of want to see everyone and celebrate especially when the book's done quite well um but there's so many bigger problems going on that you just go oh you know get a grip it's not a big deal but it's still tough though yeah but um 
I've met with my editor face to face to talk about the structural changes for my second book, which is in the works at the moment. So that was lovely. So, you know, um, thank goodness for technology for keeping us all connected. But yeah, it's been hard. Are you allowed to tell us what you're working on now? <laughs> it's a completely different book in every way. Um, Isher, my, my editor, who's the editorial director of Nights Of, has forbidden me from kind of talking too much about it. But um, it's a middle grade again. It's a, a neurodivergent heroine. And I like to kind of describe it. It's like a pre-dystopia. Kind of like where we're living at. just Yeah, now. kind of like contemporary fiction. But... <laughs> <laughs> um so you're you're basically an author now that's very exciting what would you say your favorite thing is about writing uh writing I actually really like it I think it's, a lot of authors sort of talk about how much they hate writing but I really like it I find it really a great way to kind of switch the brain off and and yet also just engage everything you have and and forget the world for a bit I really enjoy writing and it's it's lovely when people who like what you've written that's always the, a great feeling it's a terrifying feeling when someone t tells you they're about to read your book that's probably the worst part of it but no I really like writing <laughs> I'm really glad I get to do it for a job it's amazing it's, I'm really proud of you so you talked earlier about the magnificent Jacqueline Wilson and how you know she was an important part of your childhood reading is there you know, a book from Jacqueline Wilson or any other book from your youth that still resonates with you today? Yes, there are two books that really resonate today with me. One would be Anne of Green Gables, which was written a long time ago, but I still just love. And I like to say that with Spark, I tried to write a sort of neurodivergent Anne of Green Gables, where it's about a girl and her community. And um, But with Jacqueline Wilson, she wrote a book called Secrets, which has two protagonists, one from a very deprived background and one from a very affluent background. And it's about their relationship and their friendship and the ups and downs of their lives. And I just I just loved that book as, as a 10 year old. And I, I would describe it to my parents and they were like, what do you like about it? Like, what is what is fun about this book? But I was that's just the way, you know, you can't really put your finger on why Jack and Wilson books were so good, but I just loved it. And um. She didn't hold any punches and I I just yeah, I just and nobody has written a book in my eyes that has touched me with two protagonists the way Secrets did. You know, now when I read books with two different viewpoints, I'm like, oh Secrets was better. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I think everyone would love to hear a passage from your book. So do you have one picked out? Yeah, I'm just gonna read the beginning nice and quick if that's okay. Of course. Chapter 1. This handwriting is utterly disgraceful. I hear the words, but they seem far away, as if they are being shouted through a wall. I continue to stare at the piece of paper in front of me. I can read it. I can make out every word, even through the blurriness of tears. I can feel everyone in the classroom watching me, my best friend, her new friend, the new girl. Some of the boys are laughing. I just keep staring at my writing. Then suddenly it's gone. Miss Murphy has snatched it from my desk and is now ripping it up. The sound of the paper being torn is overly loud, right in my ears. The characters in the story I was writing beg her to stop, but she doesn't. She crumples it all together and throws it towards the classroom bin. She misses. My story lies in a heap on the scratchy carpet. Do not ever write so lazily again, she shouts. Maybe she isn't even shouting, but it feels that way. Do you hear me, Adeline? I prefer being called Addie. 
Not ever. A girl your age knows better than to write like that. Your handwriting is like a baby's. I wish my sister was here. Kitty always explains the things that I cannot control or explain for myself. She makes sense of them. She understands. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Oh, you too. This was lovely. <laughs> and I can't wait to read your next book. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review and a rating. Find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.